We're continuing in our study of Hebrews. We're really starting to come in for a landing here. There's 13 chapters in Hebrews, and we're just starting into chapter 13 this morning. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow the the passages in the bulletin. That's what I'll be preaching from. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but let me just say this by way of review, that as people have studied this book of Hebrews, they've tried to figure out what is the genre of this book. You know, some books in the New Testament are just epistles. They just, you can tell it's a, a letter from beginning to end. The Gospels are, sor- are sort of their own genre. Uh, Acts is a book of history. What is Hebrews? And there's ways that it's kind of like a long sermon. There's ways that it's like a letter, an epistle. So uh, I've seen a couple of really good New Testament scholars have said, I, I would just call it a sermon letter. So we've been calling it a sermon letter. This passage that we're looking at this morning, this is really where Hebrews goes from being mostly sermon to mostly letter. You're going to start to hear these exhortations, kind of ethical directions start coming at you like other New Testament letters. Um, Here's what I want you to think about is why this is happening and why it ever happens in in a letter in the New Testament. When you see really application kick in, do this, do this, do that, do that. It comes after all this teaching. It comes after all this doctrine. If you've been coming for a while, you know that like this side is always the prior thing, and this is always the future over here. These are the forward-thinking people in our congregation right here. But uh, if, if, if this is Hebrews 1 through 12... This passage is the writer saying, okay, so if, if that's really true, and not just it's true and you sort of concede that point, you assent to it, but really, if, it, if the truth of chapters 1 through 12 went into your heart and really got in your bones, what would happen? And I I want you to think in terms of orthodoxy. You know, orthodoxy is a good word. I don't mean Eastern orthodoxy. I mean just Christian orthodoxy, the historic Christian faith. And Hebrews 1 through 12 has a load of it. Uh, You can write theology books out of Hebrews 1 through 12. Orthodoxy. But orthodoxy is supposed to lead to this thing called orthopraxy. Right thinking is supposed to lead to right living. What would it look like if the orthodoxy of Hebrews 1 through 12, almost the whole book, what if it became visible? You can't see orthodoxy, but what if it became visible in the lives of people like us? What form would it take? What would it transform? Let's look. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. I'm just going to mention this. There's a reference in verse 2 to entertaining angels, which is sort of cryptic. It's a reference to something that happened in the life of Abraham. He had some guests over, uh, gave them food, had them to his, at least outside his tent, and he didn't realize that one was the Lord and two were angels. And the Jewish readers of Hebrews would know that account. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. 
Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in your Son's name, Jesus. Amen. I don't know how many of you saw the movie The Help or, uh, or read, read The Help. I want to um, read a little scene to you. In, in the story of The Help, there's this ramping up for a lot of the book or the movie to this event that's going to take place in this city. And it's sort of a fundraiser, gala, dinner, you know, dress-up affair. And it's raising money for a charity. And, uh, and the, the, the name of the charity is The Poor Starving Children of Africa. The Poor Starving Children of Africa. So there's this main character named Hilly, and, uh, and she's been championing this and organizing it. So people have been having their cocktails, and after a while they tink the glasses and get everyone quiet. And, and here's what Hilly says. Before we start the announcements, I'd like to go ahead and thank the people who are making tonight such a success. Without turning her head from the audience, Hilly gestures to her left, where two dozen colored women have lined up dressed in their white uniforms. A dozen colored men are behind them in gray and white tuxedos. And of course, the context of the help is the civil rights era of the 60s. Hilly says, let's give a special round of applause to the help for all the wonderful food they cooked and served and for the desserts they made for the auction. Here, Hilly picks up a card and reads, In their own way, they are helping the League reach its goal to feed the poor, starving children of Africa, a cause, I'm sure, dear to their own hearts as well. The white people at the tables clap for the maids and servers. Some of the servers smile back. Many, though, stare at the empty air just above the crowd's heads. There's a lot of awkward moments like that in, um, in that book, in the movie. Because you can feel that there's something disingenuous about saying, let's come together and be really intentional and let's raise money for these under-resourced children in Africa and to be oblivious to who around you is under-resourced and what that would mean. And You know, it's easy to do that with just Christian belief, with, with, with what I'm calling orthodoxy. Uh, 
fact, part of orthodoxy is what we believe about the church itself. If you profess the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, if you, if you um, profess the Nicene Creed, you talk about believing in the church. Now, you don't believe in it in the same way you believe God, like the, this is where authority and everything comes from. That's not true of the church, but we believe that the church is His special institution. It's like no other. It's God is the church's father. Christ is the church's groom and elder brother. And, uh, and that we are brothers and sisters. Now, it's one thing to kind of think about that in the abstraction, maybe cut a check to some missionaries far off to establish another church somewhere else. But it's another thing to love the person right in front of you. You know, it's it, like in our context, it's another thing to get a call. Let's say, that you, let's say you host a community group, like it meets in your house, and you get a phone call and somebody says, hey, uh, I was you know, thinking about visiting or my family wants to come visit, and, and you've met this person, and it took about three nanoseconds for you to figure out you would never hang out with them. But they do love Christ, and they're coming over. Then, you know, like, an expression that I, I hear more lately, I'm sure it'll pass by like a lot of expressions, but when people say, it just got real, you know, it just got real. Something just went from conversation or concept or idea to like real life urgency. Hebrews 13 is sort of the, it just got real of the book of Hebrews saying, all this sermon that I just took you through is true. All this is real. Everything I've told you about Christ it's urgent. But you'll know that this orthodoxy is real when it becomes visible in your life, when it transforms real things in your life. What kind of stuff does it transform? So let, let's think about three this morning. I'm going to call it transformed connection. And what I mean is connection with each other, Christians, brothers and sisters. Transformed connection. Transformed adulthood. Transformed grown upness, and then transformed say so. And I'll explain that when I get to it. But first off, transformed connection. Let me read these first few verses again, starting in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now, here's what the writer is doing. The writer has already, and this has been a while now, so this is a little bit of review. Way back in chapter 2, he referred to the fact that God says, hey, here are all my children. And it's talking about God looking at all the believers. Not just all human beings, but those who believe. And they're his children. Not pretend. They really have been brought in as his children, and he is their father. And then it talks about Christ being the firstborn of all these brothers, and that he's not ashamed to call us brothers as our elder brother. So that, all right, there's this family. But the writer's saying this, all right, it's, yeah, it's a beautiful concept, but we'll know that it got in your heart if you really treat another Christian, especially one who's not already in your circle. You know, who's not already a PLU, people like us, as a brother or sister, even if he or she is a stranger, even if he or she is imprisoned. 
And, and what the writer is giving us is something a lot stronger and more robust than niceness. There is plenty of niceness out there. I know there's some not nice people, but there's a bunch of nice people. There's a bunch of niceness in the South. There isn't as much brotherly love. And these terms that, that are used here are really, they're really strong terms. The first one you know, uh, even if you don't know Greek, we, we would say Philadelphia. It, Greeks would say, I think, Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Let that continue. But then he uses a term that sounds like that, but it's different. Philoxenia. Stranger love. Now, hospitality in the South tends to feel like and be thought about like put on the dog and really put out a spread and put out your best and then have over the people that you love. And there's definitely a place for that. There's a place for doing that and for feasting. But what the writer envisions is not like something that would be in a garden and gun photo shoot. It's real life, in the moment, with a stranger. Uh, in other words, th- think about it this way. Think about, okay, you may or may not have siblings. If you do have siblings, you may or may not like them. But let's say you do have a sibling and you really, really like this sibling or just imagine, try to imagine having like a brother or sister that you really, really, really love and like and enjoy. And how would you want him or her to be treated when he or she, let's say, visited a church somewhere else? Or if he or she were in a bind and they were in between things and they didn't know where to turn for help. Or if through some strange set of circumstances, if that brother or sister was behind bars, what would you want? Well, this is my brother, this is my sister. I want someone to visit them. I want someone to write them. I want someone to remember his or her name and pray for them. And the writer is saying, all right, that would, of course you would feel that. This is your, your kin. All Christians are the kin of all Christians. Now, let's think about a couple of things that means for us. You know, I, I, I've plagiarized something. I heard a guy say one time, I must have said this a thousand times, because I think it's such a great image. He said, you know what? If you've been in a coma and you move your little finger, that's a big deal. And what he was talking about was if, if, there's, if there's an area of the Christian life where nothing has been going on, there's no change, there's no growth, there's no transformation, and then there's just one little baby step, that's a big deal. And that, that's encouraging to me. Like, I'm not going to start at 100 miles an hour. I've got to take some baby steps first. Here's a baby step. It, it used to be sort of a accepted, maybe even common thing, that uh, when believers met somewhere like this, like a church, that Christians might make extra food for lunch and then just invite someone. And it seems like that increasingly feels weird to us, almost transgressive, uh, it really pushes on American sensibilities about privacy. 
that might be a great baby step. I, th that is between you and the Lord, and I, I certainly can't mo monitor it. But what if we had a culture where, like, maybe we even sometimes had extra food and met somebody and had the freedom to say, well, look, why don't you just, why don't you just come over to our house and, and eat? That would be a baby step of, I don't know you, but you love Jesus, and I love Jesus. So we're connected even though we don't know each other yet. Let, let me click it up a little bit. Uh, we have several people here at Downtown Prez who have volunteered with prison ministries. And they would be quick to tell you that if you go into a facility in Jesus' name and interact with inmates, you're going to find out something pretty quickly, is that this is not just outreach. Now, outreach goes on. And certainly that's, a, that's an opportunity to, to tell anybody about the good news of Jesus Christ and that none of us are better than anybody else. But what you'll find when you go into a prison and you build relationships is that this is also an act of brotherly love because you will meet Christians. And there's a million different reasons why they may have been incarcerated. Uh, maybe they were Christians and made some bad choices and they went to prison, or maybe they were converted behind bars. But if you had kin that you loved, K-I-N, behind bars, what would you want? I want somebody to see them. I want somebody to write them. I want somebody to remember their name on a Wednesday and pray for them. And the writer is saying, that's, how, that's what we want with each other. That's what we need with each other. Because that is something bigger than niceness. That is, that is a transformed level of connection. That's not having church. That's being the church. Um, second, transformed adulthood. I wasn't sure what to call this. Because it's talking about sex and money. And uh, you know, I thought about that. And I thought, well, what are two of the biggest things that make little kid life different than grown-up life, or grown-up life different than little kid life. Well, it's, they're not the only two things, but two of them are sex and money. As one commentator said, these are, quote, perennial human issues. They were then, they are now. Look in verses 4 and 5. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now think about in regard to sex and money. The writer, the writer says things, states things negatively and states things positively. Negatively about sex. This may sound medieval. It certainly sounds countercultural. It sounded countercultural in the first century. It sounds countercultural in the 21st century. But there is actually a coming reckoning, an ultimate accountability, and even judgment for sexual sin, whether that is adultery for the spouse or any other form of sexual immorality. There is a coming judgment. I feel like 
I am from another time saying that. But the New Testament is really clear. Uh, in regard to money, it's interesting what, what the writer does. He, he, he used these love words at the beginning, like practice brother love and practice stranger love, love of strangers. Here he says, beware of silver loving, money loving. You may have a lot of it or not much of it or somewhere in between, but it's when you start loving it that it will take you down a road that you do not want to go down. So he says, don't do that. And that's the negative. Positively, what does the writer say? Let marriage be honored by everybody. And you know what's amazing? That's not just pushing on the non-Christian world or the pagan culture of the first century. That's even pushing on parts of church history. Even parts of the Christian tradition where people have misinterpreted the Bible and said, you know what, marriage is not really optimal, celibacy is optimal. The writer here is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. let everybody honor marriage. And that if that is your calling, it is to be honored. And the marriage, in Greek it just says the bed. The bed is to be undefiled. The bed is to tell the truth about the relationship between Jesus and the church. We'll come to that in a second. Uh, as for money, what does he say positively? Be content. I remember one time uh, I was out with a friend, and we were, um, we were at a restaurant owned by a Greek family, and the old man who had worked there my whole life, and, and he's 158 years old, and he's bussing tables, and he's wiping down tables, and he's seating people, and he, I mean, he's just like kind of one of these old classic guys that does the whole thing. And a friend of mine got to talking to him, and he found out that this guy fought in the Greek army in World War II, and he came here, and just this kind of classic story. But at the end of encapsulating his life, he said, I have everything I ever wanted. And I thought, I have never heard someone say that. I have everything I ever want. I mean, contentment is so rare. So, all right, so fleshing this out, first off about, uh, about sexuality, let's go back to this thought of healthy sex Life-giving sex tells the truth about Jesus and the church. I don't want to be more graphic than Scripture, but I don't want to be less graphic than Scripture or less earthy than Scripture. Healthy sexuality tells the truth about Jesus and the church. Jesus does not have more than one spouse. Jesus does not have more than one lover. Jesus is not flirting with someone else who's more attractive and more convenient than the church. And we have given him plenty of reason to. Jesus is not dabbling. Jesus is the groom, and the church is the bride. And that has implications in our culture. Healthy sex tells the truth about Jesus and the church. It has always been that way. 
outside of that marriage covenant, it will hurt your insides and maybe your actual body. Inside the marriage covenant, it is a gift from God and to be regarded as such and prioritized. What about money and stuff and contentment? Um, I, I heard something disturbing a few months ago, and I want to share it with you so that you'll be disturbed too, <laughs> since misery loves company. It was an interview with a guy that recently came out with a book about uh, just, he, he's arguing for, I think, 10 reasons to just completely get out of social media. I'm not pushing for that, but that's, that's what he wrote. And the interviewer asked him, look, but at the end of the day, how, how are some forms of social media different than like a billboard? You know, like a billboard, is, it's telling you something that it wants you to do or say or it's trying to influence you. Social media is trying to influence you. How are those different? And the, this writer immediately said, well, it, at least a couple of ways. Number one, when I look at a billboard, everybody else that looks at the billboard sees the same billboard. That's not how social media works. Social media is changing and modifying according to what it's learned about you, which leads to the second point. And that is that if I look at the billboard, the billboard is not looking back at me. Social media is looking back at you. And it's learning things, and it's reorienting pieces. You know, as a friend of mine told me a few months ago, hey, it, you can tell what I'm looking at on Instagram by just click the magnifying glass and see what it sort of suggests to me. And you'll know what I've been up to. Okay, so obviously we could say a lot about sexuality and, you know, consumption with whatever, but, like, what, what if one of the things that social media is saying to us is, okay, clearly you don't like your stuff. It's clear. It's clear from your searches. It's clear from the photos that you hover over that it, your home is not decorated right. It's not modern enough. There's not enough square footage. It's not as nice as this thing over here that I keep looking at. What, if, it's, if things that are looking at us are telling us that, that actually would be worth learning. That, yeah, I mean, we, we have freedom to buy other stuff. We have freedom to replace our stuff. We have freedom to get a bigger place if, if we need a bigger place. But... Does the place ever fix it? Does the stuff ever fix it? Because God wants your heart. God wants our heart. And He knows if you don't really believe that I love you and I'm never going to leave you and I control everything and everybody... But you don't have to be scared when I say that because I love you and I'm going to take care of you. That that would really affect like purchases or square footage or scrolling through a feed. Transformed adulthood. Last thing, and again, I just wasn't sure what to call this, so I'm calling it transformed say-so. You know, somebody's going to have say-so in your life so what does this passage have to do with say-so? Look in verse 7. Now, he refers to leaders, and these are not civic leaders or national leaders. There are passages about that, but this is not one of them. These are church leaders. Verse 7, 
Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now that seems to mean ones who are gone now. Maybe they died of natural causes. Maybe they were martyred. But they're gone. Remember them. Remember their lives and what they taught you. But then look at verse 17. And I'm just going to say ahead of time, you would be hard-pressed to come up with a passage about church that is more jarring for Americans who are all about individualism and autonomy and anything that affects my life, I must control it and put my hands all over it. So if church is part of my life, I've got to control my experience there. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I don't have a lot of opportunities to highlight this, so let me highlight this. Uh, in a few weeks, we'll admit some, some new members of our church. When folks stand before us, uh, the pastor will pose questions to them. We ask five questions. Here's the fifth question. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church. And when we offer our foundations class, I try to explain what that means so that it's not a little rubber stamp, but do you hear what it's saying? Uh, When we install a new pastor, we ask the pastor a bunch of questions, and then we ask the congregation this question. Do you promise to receive the word of truth from his mouth with meekness and love and to submit to him? in the due exercise of discipline. And then listen to this one, last one. When we install new elders and deacons, the officers, we ask them a bunch of questions, and then we ask the congregation this. Do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive this brother as a ruling elder or deacon, and do you promise to yield him all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which his office according to the Word of God and the Constitution of this church, entitles him. Man, I, that is jarring to hear. And of course, what it might make somebody say is, well, I'd like to know what the Greek of verse 17 says. It actually says, obey them and submit to them, as it turns out. Uh, don't shoot the messenger. That would be a great way to go out, though. I was preaching on church oversight, and they killed me. (laughs) Pretty good martyrdom story. But I digress. Don't shoot the messenger, but here's the reality. Whether it's the first century or the 21st century, church leaders have always been fallible. They've always been sinners. Uh, They've always mishandled some things or been uneven about something. It has always been that way. And a way that we show that the gospel is transforming us is where we are so secure that Christ is really seated at the right hand of God the Father. It says that like three or four times in Hebrews. That we are so secure that He's at the throne... And that he raises up imperfect, little s, lowercase s, shepherds to 
to watch over his sheep, and he's the chief, capital S, shepherd, that the sheep can actually be watched by the shepherds, cared for, under their oversight, and even, dare we say it, submit to them. Because what that's an act of is, you know what it's like? It's, you know, I've said before, if a wife sees the passage in the New Testament that says, wives, submit to your husbands, and she's thinking, I have a difficult husband, what she just said is, I have a husband. And when a church member sees verse 17 and thinks, but it's hard to obey and submit to church leaders. What you just said is, I have church leaders. And they're, they're, they're sinners and mortals like me. But I'm going to sort of submit ultimately to the person above them and behind them. I mean, that would be a sign of inner transformation. But let me end with this. Um, if you're taking notes, just put your... I can't make you stop, but like, I, I, please stop for a second. Um, look at verse 8. Verse 8 sounds like something that should be at the beginning of Hebrews. Hebrews just starts off with all this awesome stuff about Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and He's the exact imprint of God's nature. There's no way that God the Father has any different character at all than... It's what Jesus said. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Exact imprint. All these awesome claims about Jesus. And then, so we get to chapter 13. There's all this ethical stuff. Do this, do this, do this. Prisoners, sex, money, church leaders. And then all of a sudden, the writer says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It almost seems like he's saying, hey, you are not saved by your level of love. We need to love each other. You are not saved by your hospitality. You are not saved by your love of prisoner, sexual purity, contentment, church government appreciation, whatever. Your salvation is by Jesus Christ. He will always be who He has always been. That's how I want to end this. Yet let's love each other deeply. Let's not just be civil and courteous with each other. Let's love each other. Let's love the Christian we haven't met yet. Let's have upright lives. But Jesus Christ is your righteousness. He hasn't always been man, but he has always been God the Son who loves us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please now take your word and change us. Change how we do church life. Change how we do money and house, stuff, how we do sexuality, 
how we treat each other, other Christians, how we interact, how we hear about needs of other Christians. It changes through the gospel, not through our good instincts. We don't have good instincts to bring. Change us through your Son. We pray in His name. Amen.